This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Benjamin Smith about his new book, The Mexican Press and Civil Society, 1940 to 1976. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin uh, this interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and and your work and how you came to writing this book. Uh, Certainly. So uh, my name is Benjamin Smith. I'm a Latin American uh, historian. Um, I'm currently at the University of Warwick in the UK, Um, but I studied my PhD at Cambridge uh, under David Brading and then uh, went to work at Michigan State University uh, for about seven or eight years uh, before coming back to the UK, Uh, not, not clearly for the money. Um, I, uh, how did I come to, to, to write this book? Uh, well, I suppose it was kind of inspired by three, three things. Uh, uh, I suppose the first was when I was actually studying my PhD, I came across this extremely, for me, kind of exciting, vibrant local newspaper called El Chapolin, which is run out of Oaxaca city by this kind of, um, faintly kind of crazy Bolaño-esque crowd of, uh, workers, journos, taxi drivers, poets. Um, and I, it kind of just, I loved it. It was incredibly entertaining to read. It was very funny, incredibly rude, uh, but also very critical of the state. Uh, and it struck me that there was a very kind of critical public sphere in Mexico, particularly in the provinces, during the 1940s and 1950s. So that was kind of what sparked my interest. Intellectually, uh, I mean, I've always been pretty inspired by the work of, of Alan Knight. I mean, as a British Mexicanist, it's difficult not to be. Uh, but he wrote a particularly, for me, a particularly interesting essay about civil society in the post-revolutionary period, which I thought was kind of uh, fairly important for this book. It's provided the kind of intellectual basis for it in many ways. And then I suppose also finally the work of Pablo Picasso has been pretty uh, exciting, looking at things like the Nota Roja, looking at the public sphere in Mexico uh, more generally. So between those kind of works and my own interest, that's how, uh, that's why I got interested. I suppose the last thing to say is because it transpired that it was, I found it anyway, amazingly entertaining uh the kind of stories of these journalists their lives the way they express themselves um their uh, uh endless kind of internecine f- uh, kind of bitchy fights all of it was was a fairly kind of entertaining thing uh to write about so so i suppose that's also why i chose to do it well, I would say it definitely. This book definitely reads like that as well. I think um, while reading it, I sort of forgot it was a monograph and felt like it was a beach read, just because of some of the crazy, interesting stories and characters that that come up in it. 
for, for listeners who are maybe a little bit less familiar with Mexican history specifically, your, your book is dated 1940 to 1976. Could you tell us a little bit um, or set the scene a little bit of what Mexico is like at this time period and, and why you chose this date range? Yeah, certainly. Uh, yes, I don't realize it seems so obvious for a Mexican, but I suspect for anyone outside Mexico, it seems a very odd choice of dates because it sits just before. Well, if you're a European, just after World War Two begins. If you're uh, uh, if you're American, just before World War Two begins. Um, so effectively, this is a period of time that we kind of know as kind of Golden Age Mexico. Um, the high point of pre-Mexico, maybe nowadays myself and Paul Gillingham might call it Dicta Blanda Mexico. So basically, it's the period when the pre-party wins most of the elections and the economy is on the up and there's relatively limited, um, uh, I suppose, opposition to the pre, although it is growing by the 1960s. So it's this kind of point of... What often was seen as a kind of very stable, semi-authoritarian uh, regime, uh, and also a time when, at least according to a lot of people, there was very little input from civil society. But that's something I, I, I kind of try to to counter. Uh, so, as I say, it goes from really the beginning of the the the, the I suppose more right-leaning pre-regime in 1940. So, at the end of Lazaro Cardenas's regime through to 1976, uh, where uh, Jose Lopez Portillo comes to power and uh, things really go south in terms of the kind of pre-stability. So, so you just mentioned uh, something that, that really leads into your introduction and one of the main arguments of the book, uh, which is that historians have, uh, as you argue here, under undercounted the role of civil society in Mexico at this time, maybe overemphasizing how much control uh, that the state has in Mexican society. Could you tell us a little bit about generally what you found to be true about press culture and how it, it played a role in civil society in Mexico during this time period? Right, absolutely. So uh, effectively, <coughs> I did actually, before I... Uh read the, might not notice it from reading the book but before writing it I did read rather a lot about civil society and also about the public sphere and there are effectively very in very basic terms two ways to see civil society what one in the kind of classic Tocquevelian sense which is a group of kind of non-state organizations so think everything from a kind of local group that gets together to build a bridge through to a sports team that gets together every Saturday and plays football through to the local Masonic Lodge. Uh, the other way to see civil society is to see it as uh, what Habermas would call a public sphere. Uh, so basically people discussing objects of common interest uh, in a rational sense. Uh, and the press obviously plays a really key role in this. Now, most people thought that from 40 to 1976, the pre had a fairly firm hold over the press and people didn't bother to read the press. Uh, I found, a, as far as I can make out, there's a massive expansion of the press. There's a massive enthusiasm for reading the press. And the pre really didn't manage to control any newspapers or they didn't manage to control a lot of newspapers, particularly outside Mexico City. Uh, so, and there were a lot of newspapers out Mex outside Mexico City, although no one's really ever written about them. I mean, literally, there are thousands. 
Yeah, I think that that's an excellent. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed reading that point because I think it, I think it does get at how Mexico City focused a lot of these discussions about political culture can be, um, which mm-hmm. is something that you've tackled in some of your other books as well. Um, but when you, when you, your first chapter does begin with Mexico City. Right? It's almost sort of obligatory when writing about mm-hmm. Mexico. Your first chapter does begin with Mexico City, and you describe this beautiful game that Mexico City readers engage in, where they're reading some of the most heavily controlled or pro-government press in in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're still able to sort of read between the lines or make sense of these secret code words that actually tell you what the journalists think. Can you tell us what it's like to be in the most heavily state-favorable media market in Mexico City? Uh, Yes, certainly. So... um, uh... So in order to cut, I mean, so by the 1940s, early 1950s, the state was clamping down a fair amount on what was written in the big national broadsheets. So things like Excelsior, Universal, Novedades. So in order to kind of bypass this, but also to kind of uh, talk to a lot of the kind of politicians and bureaucrats that read uh, these newspapers, they uh, many journalists started to basically come up with their own language to to discuss political beefs a lot of this language was kind of jokey you didn't quite you you had to be kind of in the know to understand who they were discussing a lot of the um discussions were kind of sotto voce there was a lot of euphemism involved uh so reading some of these columns is almost kind of like reading uh a different uh, a, a, a different language to a certain extent. Um, so the kind of king of this, the guy who in, invents a lot of the terms, was a guy called um, Carlos de Negri, uh, who was a kind of famously unpleasant human being and and a pretty vicious journalist as well. Uh, ended up getting shot by by, by his wife um, after kind of brutally abusing her for many years. Um, and uh, yeah, he he came up with this this whole kind of say uh, kind of jokey political language uh, that was used in Mexican political columns in the national press for, for 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 decades, and still kind of it's used today. I mean, if you read some of the uh, more arcane columnists still around, uh, then they still will use. You kind of have to be in the know to know quite what's going on. I think I think it's such a, a wonderful image you 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 paint in here of of these Mexicans reading newspapers and debating back and forth what they think these terms mean and and them sort of getting familiar with individual journalists and the language they use. Um, I think it I think it not only pushes back on the idea that there's not a civil society in Mexico at this time, but I think it also um, shows that not only there is one, but it's incredibly complicated and and complex and rich, um, which which makes for a great read. Well, so I mean, the other thing that I didn't, I didn't actually didn't have time. I've always thought I should write an article about this. So one thing that's always um, really fascinating me is not only are there these columns, there are also uh, a huge amount of basically private newsletters that are sent round bureaucratic offices, um, hmm. kind of party offices. That you know, the, whether it be the peasant union or the you know the the, the, the popular sector. The first one of these is called the Bureau de. Oh, the Bureau de Investigaciones Políticas, or the BIP. Um, yeah. which, I mean, it's incredibly, it's really difficult to get holds of, hold of copies of these because they, you know, they only published about 350 of them, but they were sent to the 350 most 
you know, important people in the nation, from like Cardenas to Miguel Aleman to um, uh, Lombardo Toledano, no? Um, so all the most important people got them, and they had all this kind of inner gossip about what was going on in the pre. Again, really uh, often pretty scandalous stuff uh, was being uh, was being said. And and again, although it starts with this one called the BIP, by the nineteen sixties there are literally hundreds of these of these kind of private newsletters. And I think that that gets at one of the most interesting sort of interplays going on in this book where there were both the, the the corruption and the violence and some of the the nefarious activities of the government and the pre are on the one hand just widely known. I mean there's no there's almost no secret to it. But on the other hand, there is still some government censorship and some attempt to to paint the best picture possible, which you describe more in your second chapter about the different ways that uh, the Mexican government does directly or indirectly try to influence the media or, or control the media. So I, I know that the main argument of your book is that there is this robust civil society, but could you talk us through your second chapter where there are some methods of state control and influence in the media? Yeah, certainly. So this particularly focuses on the control of the national media. So I try to kind of make the argument there are kind of effectively three ways that you control the media. The first is basically what they call anticipatory compliance. So classic example of this is, let's say, Rupert Murdoch, owner of your Fox News, owner of my Sun, tele, uh, Sun uh, what else, Times newspaper. You basically, you employ journalists that think and speak like you do, right? Uh, and that's the easiest way to, 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 um, uh, to kind of silence uh, the press. And the pre's and many of the editors are pretty good at that, right? The vast majority of journalists come from the same schools as they do, go to the same universities as they do, come from similar backgrounds and think the same way that they do, particularly in the, in the national press. The second way to control the increasing way that the pre controls the press is through what we would now call spin doctoring. Uh, so basically through press offices. So these are and I, what I found kind of fascinating was the way that you could kind of trace the sophistication of these press offices over time. So in the 1940s, they're, I mean, they, they barely exist. They effectively just put out press releases, uh, which no one takes any notice of. Um, and then occasionally angry bureaucrats turn up and try and smack journalists for not publishing the press release. Um, but by the 1950s, these are fairly kind of sophisticated organisation. And by the 1960s, they are heavily manned organisations which are trying to find out what every newspaper wrote, trying to control what every columnist says, trying to control what the front page says on these newspapers. I mean, this is the, you know, the, uh, this is a pretty sophisticated press control machine. And the final way uh, in which the pre controlled the press was basically financial. Um, so they, A, uh, they, they pay for a lot of the newspapers. Uh, they paid for uh, whether it be cheap printing press, uh, cheap paper. Uh, they pay, they gave them loans for printing presses. They very rarely asked for the payback on these loans. But they also, by the fifties, late fifties, early sixties, they're paying the the journalists themselves. So most journalists are earning their weekly wage, and they're earning about the same amount from some part of the state, which is also paying them. 
Um, so, uh, so these are these kind of three ways in which the national newspapers are fairly well controlled by the kind of late 50s, early 60s. But I mean, even here, although the mechanics of it seem so kind of obviously corrupt, in actual fact, uh, one thing that, that, that I continually kind of held in my mind is to what extent were Western newspapers of the time similarly controlled, perhaps not in such a kind of mechanistic, obvious fashion, uh, but Cold War US and UK newspapers were equally controlled and very, very rarely could say things outside what the government wanted them to. Um, so uh, so I think, you know, the, the difference we often draw between the kind of Mexican press and the, you know, quote unquote, Western press is, 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 is very much a, a false one. Yeah, I, I definitely had, uh, I, I loved those comparisons to other sort of Western democracies that, that have um, freedom of the, the press, or at least nominally don't have this sort of government interference, uh, especially when you get to some of these uh, social parties and boys clubs parties between the journalists and state officials. I, my first thought went to the press correspondence dinner here in the United States, and I'm sure that there are plenty of other examples elsewhere. Yeah, certainly in the UK. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is a, I mean, yeah, but my, our entire government is full of former journalists who have all got contact with, I mean, you know, Boris Johnson was a former journalist, Michael Gove's a former journalist. I mean, they're all, uh, yeah, basically journos, all of whom are mates with other journos, right? The the the, the, the key spin doctor is married to uh, the sub-editor of The Spectator. But true to, the, true to the core argument of the book, you quickly transition back into the ways that the government loses control or doesn't actually control it as much as they would like to. In your um, third chapter, The Year Mexico Stopped Laughing, uh, which is just a great uh, investigation of the role of satire in Mexico and Mexico City and how the PRI ultimately has to respond to the power of satire in the press. Could you tell us a little bit about this chapter? Right. So this chapter began by me getting everything completely wrong. So I had, having read Chapolin, this Oaxaca based satirical newspaper that ran from the 30s through to the 60s, I had I thought there were a lot of satirical newspapers throughout Mexico. So I turned up in the Mexico City newspaper archive and desperately tried to find them uh, and found out that there were very few. There were quite a few in the late 1930s, quite a few in the early 1940s. But then for some reason, they all seemed to stop around 1948. Uh, and those kind of, that that kind of churn of, funny political satire kind of disappeared or was at least relegated to those almost incomprehensible columns and still cartoons. Cartoons in big national newspapers big were still funny and still biting. They were the one space that was left. So I started to ask myself, well, why did this disappear? So I, I focused on this period, 1948, which was actually cataclysmic for the pre-regime, right? You have a devaluation, you have a workers' movement, you've got uh, the US breathing down the neck because, uh, well, for various reasons, anti-communism is one, the drug trade, which is taking off in that era as well. Um, so for all these reasons, Mexico is highly unstable in 1948. Uh, come a group of journalists who start their own newspaper or magazine called Presente, which is a biting political satire and becomes basically the voice of the 
the people of Mexico City. Everyone's reading it. Uh, one one time, that I think they they published two hundred and fifty thousand copies of it, uh, or one particular issue, uh, which is at least five times what any broadsheet newspaper is publishing at the time. So it's highly read, and it's read by everyone throughout society, uh, and it's deliberately focused on everyone. Right? It's picture heavy. It's cartoon heavy. It prints picture. It prints songs that you can sing in the street or in a bar. So it's deliberately kind of focused on it hitting a, a broad section of the population. So I looked at this this particular satirical newspaper, and then I looked at the way it was effectively crushed by the pre um, through a kind of mixture of dirty tricks, intimidation, some kind of financial shenanigans. Uh, but eventually it was, it was uh, kind of closed down. And I suppose what I found kind of interesting is that journalists – they learned their lesson. They realized you couldn't do another presente. You couldn't, you know, they were, t- and, and kind of Miguel Alaman, who was president at the time, was fairly explicit about this, right? You don't make jokes about the president anymore. Um, and you don't make jokes about high members of the cabinet. Or if you do, you do it behind closed doors. You do not publicize this in front of the people. Um, so anyway, so and it doesn't, and that kind of satire. I was kind of thinking, when does it return? It seems to kind of return somewhat under Echeverria in the nineteen seventies, where you have a similar kind of odd conjunction of economic disaster, um, the threat of kind of social upheaval, um, and that seems to bring forth again this kind of fairly vibrant satire. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, and and after you conclude with the with the eventual crackdown and the and the disappearance of some of these satire journals, you do transition to in chapter four a story of Mario Menendez and his more radical press and other journalists like him on the left end of the spectrum who refused to play by the government's rules throughout this entire time period, uh, even even though they pay the consequences for it. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Menendez and other radical journalists like him in Mexico City? Yeah, certainly. So Mario Menendez is actually still alive, apparently, uh, although he uh, he still runs nominally at least Por Esto, which is the kind of successor to his 1960s uh, newspaper Por Que. So Mario Menendez is a kind of still he's uh, he refused to talk to me, but he's a bit he's a bit of a legend uh, in journalistic uh, circles. So um during the 1960s, obviously, there is a big political churn in Mexico. Most noticeably, we see the kind of rise of student movements throughout Mexico, but kind of culminating in 1968 in Mexico City. Um, but there are loads of kind of left-wing movements uh, throughout Mexico, including among journalists. Um, and one of the kind of most prominent journalists, well, there were kind of two big newspapers the, the first is called Politica, which is run run by a guy called Marque. Uh, and then the second one is 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 Porque, run by Mario Menendez. Uh, and I found Mario Menendez a completely fascinating character. I mean, he is, he's incredibly bright. He's 
kind of incredibly dogged journalist. Um, he's by kind of 67, 68. He's a kind of card carrying member of the Communist Party. He's one of the few journalists who supports the students in 1968. Porque becomes this. I mean, it's an incredible thing to read, actually. It's quite difficult to get. I had to go to about six different archives to get a full print run of it. But it's an, I mean, it's an extraordinary kind of mixture of really, really good investigative political journalism, frankly, uh, unsubstantiated gossip, uh, and also um, kind of not a rocker crime news as well. Um, so it's, a, I mean, it's a really exciting kind of vibrant uh, newspaper. But Ma one of the things that fascinated me is Mario Menendez didn't start off like your average kind of maybe left-wing radical. He started off the scion of one of Yucatan's most conservative journalistic families. Um, and he transitioned from being a very conservative, very Catholic guy to being this, this as I say, card-carrying, contrarian um, uh, writer who ends up, I mean, he ends up becoming a, a, a completely failed He's a much better writer than he is a guerrilla fighter. Um, so he ends up uh, with a kind of failed guerrilla insurrection by the late 60s. And you you point out in this chapter and a couple of times in the book that in some ways you you uh, you recognize that Menendez's um, more radical press might be symptomatic of him coming from the, the periphery in Mexico or, or outside of the Central Valley. Um, which which transitions to your third part of the book on the regional presses, these other parts outside of Mexico City, uh, including my favorite chapter title in the book, How to Control the Press Badly, Censorship in Regional Newspapers. So how does the how do Mexican state governments or municipal governments outside of Mexico City, how do they try to manage the press and how does it go badly? Right, so they, they effectively attempt to do the same as the national as the national government is doing, but they simply don't have the tools to do it. They don't have the money to do it, so they can't just you know buy news. Well, they can't buy every newspaper a brand new printing press. Um, they can't pay off every journalist, um, um, you know, what, what, whatever they want. So they simply don't have the kind of money to do it. The other difference is is Regional politics is often highly divided and pretty bitter. Um, so it's often difficult to maintain one kind of sole political line. You often have two or three or four groups that are each fighting between one another and each uh, have their own newspaper, which puts forward their point of view. So it's very, it's very difficult to kind of control newspapers uh, using these kind of soft methods. Uh, finally, I mean, things like press offices, they do exist, but they're pretty small and not terribly uh, functional until really the 1970s in the localities. So instead, the new uh, local power brokers, particularly governors, mayors, basically rely on a mixture of kind of dirty tricks and violence something which the federal government didn't really have to rely on. Um, so there's a lot of beatings. Uh, there are some, but not very many, not compared to now, obviously, uh, killings. Um, there are a fair amount of destructions of offices, smashing up of presses, and a general level of kind of intimidation 
um, uh, by the local authorities of journalists. So, I mean, what I was um, what I was trying to do here, I suppose, was trying to see, to a certain extent, the roots of some of the violence that we see now uh, meted out, particularly to regional journalists. And I think it does, to a certain extent, have its roots in the fairly kind of rough and tumble public sphere of um, the uh, you know 1950s, 1960s, where a fair amount of people were at least being injured, if not murdered. Well, and I think you make some really interesting analysis here, which is that on the, on the one hand, this violence against journalism is representative of the authoritarian tendencies of the PRI and, and the governing parties in Mexico. But it also is uh, a signifier of how, in many ways, weak the government is, that it has to resort to violence because it, it can't imagine another way of really managing civil society or, or popular opinion. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's quite a, there's a, a few quotes there by, um, uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's a few, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, yeah, Gonzalo Santos, who is the the kind of the cacique of San Luis Potosi during the, the 1950s. And uh, he is continually, he continually wants to beat up on these journalists, uh, but he's kind of kept in check by the government, which under Ruiz Cortines is quite keen to stop state governors behaving in such a violent manner because he realizes it makes you look weak. Uh, he realizes that this is not actually a terribly functional way to control the press. So in the in the provinces, you have on the one hand this sort of um, violence and and petty egoism of some of these uh, regional politicians. But then you transition in chapter six to somebody who seems almost larger than life. He sort of rolls in. It feels like there should be a, a movie about him uh, or a more modern movie in the U.S. at least of Artemio Cruz and his press baron history and history of gangster journalism. Can you tell us a little bit about Artemio Cruz and what role he plays in the Mexican press, uh, especially in the uh, in the states outside of Mexico City? Right. So Artemio Cruz is, is, is a novel by Carlos Fuentes. And it's I think I'm pretty sure I mean, it's based on an amalgam of different press barons. But the most uh, obvious basis uh, of Carlos Fuentes's novel is this guy, Jose Garcia uh, Valseca, who is basically a massive uh, press baron of regional newspapers in Mexico. At some point, he owns about uh, not 20 percent of Mexican newspaper, but 20 percent of the regional circulation, basically, are his newspapers. Uh, so he's a fabulously wealthy highly conservative Catholic man, uh, loathed by people on the left, um, and in general, fairly in lockstep with the the kind of right wing of the pre, so the kind of Miguel Aleman, uh, Diaz or Daz side uh, of the party. However, what I found to be fascinating about this guy was that he wasn't simply a kind of official shill. He he managed to develop what people in Mexico started to term periodismo gangsteril, right? Gangster journalism. That's a direct translation from the Spanish. So this was effectively using newspapers 
um, and using public denunciations in newspapers to shake down politicians for money. Right. So this is something that if you actually talk to journalists today, they'll say it still goes on. Uh, it's still omnipresent. In actual fact, I was at a car. I organized a conference as part of an AHRC uh, British grant I had. One thing that struck me, uh, we invited a, a few local journalists and it, it was kind of distressing. <laughs> the local journalists said so many of these people who get killed, so many of these journalists who get killed, uh, they're taking money from the cartels. Then they betray the cartels and then they get killed. This is gangster journalism with gangsters and it goes wrong, right? So they, they said that it still continues today and they, they seem to kind of blame the victims of some of this violence for some of the violence meted upon them. It was very, somebody who kind of believes in the nobility of journalism, uh, the former journalist, perhaps I shouldn't, um, it was really, really disturbing. I think it was very disturbing for many of the foreign journalists there and many of the Mexico City-based journalists who didn't want to see some of these regional journalists as practising this thing uh, that seems so uh, different uh, from good journalism. But I suppose the other thing that that struck me about gangster journalism is gangster journalism can be awful journalism. It can be deliberately disguising the truth in in exchange for money. But part of gangster journalism is also telling the truth in order to extract that money. So because you've got to go and, you know, in order to shake down a, a governor who's corrupt, you've got to go and tell that story of corruption and force him into paying up. Um, so that really struck me. And, and, and it struck me that the Garcia Valseca newspapers were completely schizophrenic. So you would have for two years, there's one that I just, uh, just kind of cracked me up. It, it didn't refuse point blank to mention the name of the governor or even the term the governor. It used to say things that like, I used to deliberately avoid it and say, like, the, the person in the power of the executive. Um, and then suddenly, uh, clearly the governor paid some money because suddenly he was plastered all over the front page of the newspaper and they had these kind of big, uh, frankly, kind of brown-nosing articles about him. Um, and uh, and what was fascinating, so you could read the newspaper and then I read the Secret Service files and the Secret Service files saying it's clear that the governor had this meeting um, they called it a black wedding. Uh, the governor met Garcia Valseca, agreed to pay up, and suddenly he was on the front page uh, of the newspapers being praised uh, by Garcia Valseca. So this is, as I say, this this made for these very, very strange newspapers. I, I mean, getting at what people thought about these newspapers is pretty tough. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, it make, they're, you know, pretty strange organs to read uh with, with hindsight yeah i think part of this schizophrenia really comes clear in this chapter where people he's shaking down garcia uh Valseca is shaking down at one moment and the next scene or in the next moment in the book he'll be at a very boys club exclusive party which is nominally supposed to be a celebration of the press and then becomes just a hedonistic uh bash uh how how common are these sorts of parties where the government and the press are fraternizing in some of the most literal in the literal ways yeah this is this is what my friend carlos perez ricard uh just calls puras anecdotas ben uh right i mean <laughs> i mean it seems to me that this kind of boys club <laughs> atmosphere 
of the journalistic world. I mean, frankly, it, ha- it happens all over, right? I mean, men have dominated the printed press for really up to the last kind of 40 years in most of the world, right? Um, and it's always been about kind of boozing and, and, and you know, nice restaurants and occasional brothels. Um, uh, so the, the fact that Mexican press was a bit of a boys club is not, I suppose that's surprising. The fact that it kept itself so exclusively male for such a long time was a surprise. And also what I found kind of interesting was the way that it, the way that women started to enter the world of political news by kind of undermining this boys club. So they would use spaces that were nominally for women. So, for example, the social columns where you'd write, you know, Mrs. Garcia's had a really nice baptism. They started to use those spaces actually to critique uh the pre to critique politics to critique um uh you know prejudice and and political oppression um so as i say there was this really kind of fascinating what i find kind of gendered world of journalism uh as well i mean one thing i was really really fortunate enough to have annabel hernandez and, and lydia Cacho came to who are two kind of prominent journalists uh, they came to warwick um to publicize a book they were both in um and they both talk quite explicitly about how even today journalism is a bit of a boys club and i suppose it's perhaps no coincidence that so many of the leading critical journalists in mexico today are are women i mean not only cacho and annabel hernandez but also aristegui right i mean the big journalist some of the biggest most critical uh, Jonas Terati as well are, are, are women. Well, and, and we're sort of skipping ahead a little bit because this you bring this up again in Chapter 8 when you talk about Judith Reyes. Um, but but before we get to to that, let's, let's stop in Chapter 7 real quick called The Taxi Driver, uh, where you focus on what you call artisanal newspapers. So, so very small uh, news presses and the way that they retained some of their independence and have maybe been discounted by by historians of Mexico. So could you tell us a little bit about the the press that you talk about in chapter seven? So um, I suspect that a lot of us who study 20th century Mexico have come across an artisanal press, but perhaps have kind of ignored it because you only normally find in an archive or even an hemeroteca about three editions because they're normally published often not even on Pip's uh, official paper. So they're published on pretty poor quality paper which disintegrates very easily. Um, Often uh, it's something I kind of only got my head around right at the end of the thing, but most most newspapers send copies of their editions to the Hemeroteca, basically the state-run newspaper library in Mexico City. But if you're a really small local newspaper, frankly, you don't bother to do it, right? And I suspect, actually... You don't bother to do it if you're a Catholic, if you're an opposition, a really heavily oppositional newspaper. Why bother sending it to the state, right? You're just going to flag the fact there's an opposition newspaper out there. So getting hold of these newspapers is extremely difficult. Um, as I say, I mean, I had, I know of thousands, um, but I've only found a few that have permanent runs. And the one that I did have to find that had a permanent run was this one called Chapolin. Um, uh, it's 
about four pages long, comes out every twice a week or once a week. It's pretty irregular. Seems to change its name from Chapolin to Momento for year on year. Has a print staff of around four. Uh, they seem to do all the jobs from the printing through to the writing, through to the reporting, through to the, the sports news. They're highly localized. There is virtually, unless the president comes to Oaxaca, there's no news about the president. The news is about local mayor, local council, local shopkeepers, and occasionally the state governor. Finally, they're highly critical, unbelievably critical. They get away with stuff that I was kind of flabbergasted by, right? So it's not just the mayor's a bit corrupt. It's the brothel he goes to and the person he sleeps with. Um, it's, It's really... As I say, really salacious gossip, uh, which is presented as kind of political uh, news, uh, fairly moralistic. I suppose it can become slightly kind of repetitive, the endless kind of moralizing. Uh, but as I say, a kind of fascinating insight into the kind of uh, bitchy localism of, 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 of Mexican provincial politics of the era. Well, and, and you're quick to point out in this chapter that um, this is also the home of Porfirio Diaz. And so the state has its own unique relationship with the Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you also hone in on the fact that these are uh, these artisanal journalists and and uh, and news presses are so small that that's one of the primary reasons you think that they were relatively, you know, it may be incorruptible or, or less likely to be influenced by the government is that it's hard to bribe uh, for people who all know each other, or it's hard to, to offer government benefits to a small press that basically doesn't need that many benefits to run in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I think the kind of economic side of things is something that I came to quite late in that, I mean, cl- clearly some people buy certainly by the 1960s when provincial press offices actually do have a bit of money some groups of four people realized this was a fantastic way to shake down governors right you could start a a very critical newspaper and then go to the governor and he would pay you off and stick you in nice offices and buy you a printing press right um but also if you didn't want to do that if you really really disliked the governor there was no you, you could still maintain your independence because the your operating budget was close to zero right i mean it was incredibly small the operating budgets of these things i mean what struck me about the newspaper the chapeline is all of these people maintained other jobs right the editor uh alfredo ramirez el chapeline um he was a taxi driver that's what's called the taxi driver the chapter because he maintained his job as a taxi driver another one was a railway worker um they they didn't journalism wasn't their primary job they were kind of they thought of themselves as kind of members of civil society first, uh, workers next, and journalists only third. And, and I love how that becomes one of the factors that makes them some of the, you know, if you want to say best journalists in Mexico at the time, is that they're not full-time journalists, which I think uh, some, some it would be very easily, it'd be very easy to look at them and discount them as not being real journalists. Um, which, which is a nice inversion of that analysis. Well, it's, I mean, I, I mean, I, it's interesting, isn't it? You probably can see when this, well, I'm now look, looking back, I can see when this, um, when this book took shape, right? So we've had, we've gone through a period where we thought 
the journalism, the, the, the kind of freedom of journalism that the internet gave us was a good thing, right? So I'm thinking particularly of, of uh, the, the various kind of social movements in the Middle East where having a, a wide open uh, journalism was, was highly beneficial for democracy. Actually, also in Mexico itself, right? I mean, Mexico's own democratization movement throughout the 1990s was generated by some really good, open, free journalists. However, you know, over the last decade or so we can we we can see the limits of this kind of amateur journalism right it can that it can be co-opted pretty quickly uh it can be corralled by the right pretty quickly um uh so uh yeah i i, I think i'm i'm now slightly more ambiguous about the role of these <laughs> these kind of freewheeling journalists i think they did play that role in mexico of the 50s and 60s but you know nowadays they can be uh, a danger too well, and, and the book ends with, uh, with, with another set of journalists like this uh, in Chihuahua, and, and this one is called The Singer. Do you want to tell us a little bit about these journalists and, and maybe if your views on them have also changed maybe a little bit since this book uh, has really developed? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> the taxi driver, Chapolin, he's a kind of contrarian, which is probably great when you're fighting a kind of relatively authoritarian government, but I suspect now he might he might well be pretty Trumpist <laughs> if he was kind of reborn today. <laughs> uh, whereas, whereas Judith Reyes, um, I, I, I feel like kind of would have a, a degree of sympathy for her, whatever. I mean, she's a, I mean, she's a really fascinating person anyway. I mean, she becomes this extraordinary uh, protest singer during the 1968 movement, somebody who, again, has been forgotten not only for her, her journalism, but also her singing. Uh, she was this. Uh, she was the kind of um, Joan Baez of of sixty eight Mexico before being kicked out of the country or basically threatened with death unless she got out of the country. But before she was a protest singer, she was a journalist, um, and she wrote a for four years. She wrote a again, basically like a communist version of Chapolin uh, in Chihuahua City. Um, and was highly supportive, particularly of um, uh, of kind of peasant movements. So it was an attempt to basically roll out this critical local newspaper to the countryside, something that really most of these provincial local newspapers were pretty urban. Uh, so this was something kind of new, uh, not entirely successful, but a kind of interesting uh experiment nonetheless so as the as this book comes to a, a close after this chapter and as you get through the conclusion you you push for some new calls to to research uh, especially in rethinking and analyzing gangster journalism um so for you personally what what is next after this book yeah, no journalism, just gangsters. So, uh, no, I'm uh, <laughs> joking. So I, uh, I'm currently finishing a book. I'm currently writing the last chapter uh, of a book on the history of the Mexican drug trade. Uh, so it's called, uh, jokingly, The Dope, uh, uh, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade. Uh, and it's coming out uh, hopefully next year. Um, so it basically goes from, uh, so it's based on, 
I actually did the research for this book kind of in parallel with the research for the journalism book. And you can see occasionally in the journalism book bits about the drug trade kind of come up. So uh, it basically attempts to do a history of the drug trade from the 1910s, so effectively from the Harrison Act, uh, which made uh, drugs illegal in the United States, through to... <laughs> this is where I think I might have bitten off more than I could chew, uh, through to the present day. Uh, so it goes up to a, maybe even 2012. So it's an attempt to kind of explain the history of the trade, but also some of the contemporary uh, violence associated uh, with the trade. So as I say, it's, it's taken... Uh, nearly a decade of research in like at least 50 archives all over Mexico. It's taken interviewing DEA agents and policemen and some drug traffickers. It's quite difficult to doorstep drug traffickers I found. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's an attempt to, uh, uh, to, to, to write, um, that I'm not sure how successful it'll be now. I'm now I'm kind of getting nervous. Well, I'm I'm sure it will be an interesting book based on on this book alone, but previous work. Um, and I would love to to talk to you when that one comes out on the the New Books Network channel. Okay, well, thank you so much uh, for having me on this, and uh, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, yeah, speak soon. Yes, thank you for your time.